Jesus knew abandonment. He knew what it was like to be deserted by his friends, those who loved him. Maybe you've had that kind of experience too. Maybe in your childhood or as an adult, you have felt abandoned by those who loved you. I want you to recall what it must have been like for Jesus the night of his arrest. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane with his 11 disciples praying with them. And his betrayer, Judas, came with a pack of men with swords and clubs. And he came up to Jesus and identified him with a kiss. And he told this mob to seize Jesus and to lead him away. Only one of the disciples seemed to put up any kind of resistance But then Jesus was led away, and it says in Mark 14.43 that all left him and fled. Now we know that Peter followed where Jesus was taken, and he was in the courtyard, and he was recognized by a couple people, and he denied Jesus three times, and then fled. Jesus knew what it was like to be deserted. To be all alone, left alone by those who loved him in his greatest time of need. And yet, we know he wasn't really alone. The Father was with him and gave him strength to suffer what he was about to endure on the cross. Our final text in our study of 2 Timothy, we're going to see that Paul again is no stranger to abandonment. He testifies that when he was abandoned, he was not really alone. Jesus was with him. Jesus strengthened him. This, of course, we've been reminded of is Paul's last letter. And it's a letter to Timothy, his beloved spiritual son, who's the pastor at the church of Ephesus, And he's encouraged Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. He's encouraged him to guard the gospel that he's been entrusted with. To to fan into flame the gift of pastoring that he's been given. He knows that Timothy struggles with fears, with being timid. And so Paul tells him he must be strong to stand firm in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He needs to endure the hardship of ministry and maintain his commitment to preach the word in season and out of season. Paul tells him that more difficult times are ahead, more resistance to this message, but he must fulfill his ministry. Paul gives him the faith perspective that he's to have and all believers are to have about their lives, that believers are living sacrifices to the Lord. And here, Paul's final days of life, he considered his life as a drink offering being poured out to the Lord. And he tells Timothy that he's fought the good fight of faith, he's finished the race, he's kept the faith, and he was looking forward to the crown of righteousness that all believers look forward to receiving after they die. Well, last week we saw that Paul gave Timothy the realistic explanation, or expectation rather, of the Christian life and of ministry. 
he showed him the disappointments that he's experienced and the needs that he has. In the final stage of his ministry, he had a close fellow worker in ministry desert him. And then a non-believer fiercely oppose him. And he was being transparent with Timothy and with the church at Ephesus about his loneliness. And he tells Timothy he needs him to come to him. He needs him to bring John Mark with him. And he also has physical needs. If he lives as long uh, into the winter, he's going to need warmth because he doesn't have a warm coat. He also wants the encouragement of his books and of the Scriptures. And so he tells Timothy, on your way, pick up John Mark. On your way, pick up my cloak and my books and my parchments. Well, in today's text, we come to the very close of the letter. And Paul wants to assure Timothy through his own example that he can depend upon the presence of the Lord to give him strength. He can depend upon the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to enable him to complete his ministry, to live the Christian life with the strength of the Holy Spirit. And he shows him that Christ will protect him from evil and bring him safely home. And he shows him through his greetings to others the importance of having close believing friends in his life. And then he finally blesses him and God's people with a benediction. So follow along with me as I read 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 16 through 22. This is the word of the Lord. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained in Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Paul began this letter of 2 Timothy to Timothy and the church at Ephesus proclaiming his assurance in the life that is in Christ and the grace and the mercy and the peace that is in Christ. And now he's going to end this letter with a similar benediction, assuring Timothy and the church of the presence and the grace of Christ. And in this last section, Paul wants to proclaim the difference that that makes in his life. One of the saddest verses in the whole of the New Testament, I think, is verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. When Paul was arrested, he appealed to Caesar because he was a Roman citizen so that he could be taken to the highest court of the land and give an opportunity to give a testimony. 
He wanted to be in the very shadow of Emperor Nero's palace before the supreme court of the land. And he didn't just do this to get justice for himself, but to be able to give a witness to Christ and the gospel and to one of the highest ranking judiciary figures of the world. But when that day came, nobody, nobody stood with him. Now, most scholars believe that Paul is referring to the first hearing or investigation of his trial. And Roman law would have allowed him to employ an advocate and to call witnesses, supporters. But among all the Christians in Rome, there was no one who would stand with him. No one who would even be there for moral support. Now, we know from contemporary writers of that time that Christians were being accused of a number of things. They were being accused of being atheists because they refused to worship the emperor and the idols of Rome. They were accused of being cannibals because they misunderstood what was taking place at the Lord's Supper when they spiritually ate the body and blood of Christ. They were accused of being revolutionaries, troublemakers, enemies of the state because They were renouncing the popular sins of the culture. Now, how did Paul respond to being deserted? You know, it would have been tempting for him to grumble, to complain, to elaborate on the cowardice of these believers, the selfishness. But instead, we see what I think God wants us to see as the very first point of this message, and that is the presence and grace of Christ enabled Paul to extend grace to deserters. He writes in the second half of verse 16, may it not be charged against them. Paul undoubtedly knew that his friends there in the Rome, in the church at Rome, had failed to speak up for him, failed to be there at the trial because of fear. They were afraid of being associated with Paul because they knew that Nero and the Roman government was hunting down Christians, looking for any excuse to kill them, to throw them into the amphitheater, to the lions. Somehow they felt that if they associated with Paul at all in the court, they would be seen as guilty, complicit with him. Paul, though, had the power and the desire to forgive them. Why? Because Paul knew how much he had been forgiven. He had been forgiven far more than the sins that were committed against him from those who deserted him. I think Paul could have recalled the words of Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. Or maybe he recalled the words of Stephen. He was actually at the stoning of Stephen He held the cloaks of those who stoned him, and Stephen's last words were, Father, forgive them. I imagine what Paul writes here, he communicated to these friends in Rome something like this, you know, I was deeply hurt that you did not show up at my trial, but I'm not going to hold that against you. God forgives you in Christ, and I forgive you. Therefore, I don't want you to live with that guilt. We recall that Paul wrote the famous love passage in 1 Corinthians 13, and in verse 5 he says, love keeps no record of wrongs. 
Now, how was he able to stand alone in this trial with such courage? Well, the key is found in the first half of verse 17. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Jesus, in anticipation of his coming desertion in John 16, 32, said, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Like his master, Paul knew he was not alone. Jesus stood with him. He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Jesus stands with his people, and especially when they are alone. And his presence with them gives strength to his people. Indeed, one of the great promises of God's covenant of grace with His people is that they are set apart by His personal presence with them. He said to Abraham in Genesis 26, 24, Fear not, I am with you. David, when he went through the valley of the shadow of death, remember what he said in Psalm 23, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. In Isaiah 41.10, God promises His people this, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And right before Jesus ascended into heaven, He gave His great commission to the church and at the very end of it he said and I will be with you always even to the end of the age but Paul didn't just lean on Christ's presence to strengthen him in the trial no he knew that in God's sovereignty in God's providence he was placed in these circumstances in this position alone with Christ at his side to proclaim the good news. Paul was strengthened. And so the second point that God wants us to see in our text is the presence and grace of Christ enabled Paul to proclaim the gospel. Look at the second half of verse 17. He writes, So that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Paul was more concerned than getting justice he was more concerned than pleading his case about the gospel about proclaiming the gospel his greatest desire was to proclaim the person and work of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles and he knew that he was before the nerve center of the most powerful government in the world And this gospel message would echo through the whole Roman Empire. And so he wanted to be faithful to proclaim the gospel. You see, this is so important to Paul. And the reason it is, because we need to remember the preaching of the Word of God, the preaching of the gospel is God's primary means of grace. God uses it to bring people to faith and repentance in Christ and to build up the saints Remember Paul wrote in Romans 10, 17, so faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. 
Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Well, while preaching this message, he knew that he had been in the proverbial lion's mouth. And so we come to the third point that God wants us to see in our text. The presence and grace of Christ enabled Paul to have confidence in his ultimate rescue. At the end of verse 17, he says, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. What's he talking about here? He was delivered from the jaws of death at this particular time. He could have been sentenced right there and executed, but he was given a stay. And he might have been recalling Psalm 22, the great messianic psalm, which was on Jesus' mind when he was put to death. That psalm refers to everyone deserting him. And he called upon God to rescue him from the lion's mouth. And that he expressed confidence that the Lord would bring him safely into his kingdom. So from that experience, Paul drew encouragement and further confidence in God's ultimate rescue. And so he continues in verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Now Paul was in a dungeon. He knew he was not going to get out. He knew that God was going to have him put to death. That it was his time. But notice he says, the Lord will rescue him from every evil deed. What's he talking about there? I believe he's talking about Satan's desire to destroy the church and destroy our faith. Our faith in in Jesus and the gospel. He has his sinister purposes that he's using people to propagate throughout history. But what Paul says here is that Jesus will rescue us from the evil deeds of Satan. Our faith will not be destroyed. Our salvation will not be destroyed because God guarantees it. Now when he writes, and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom, we need to know that he's talking about death here. In verse 6 of chapter 4, he says that his time of departure has come. So he knows he's going to die. But he knows that he's in Christ's spiritual kingdom now, and he will certainly be in God's heavenly kingdom soon when he dies. You know, it's appropriate when we have a funeral for a believer that we speak of him or her as being ultimately healed, ultimately delivered. Because that's what heaven is. We enter into the fullness of life in God's presence. And we're promised a resurrection of our bodies someday. So we will have a full human life as well. And so death is the door that we go through to experience the continued presence of Christ even in a greater way. So Paul expected this and with this confidence that God would ultimately rescue him and the glory of heaven, he just breaks out in doxology in verse 18. 
He says, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. He had in his view the horizon of of Christ, the horizon of heaven and the glory of heaven. And even in a prison setting, even though he knew he was going to die soon, he gives glory to God. Now at this point, at the end of this letter, Paul gives his final greetings. And I think it's remarkable. He's awaiting execution. And yet he has a concern for his friends. He wants to greet people. He wants to inform Timothy of where certain people are. He wants to send greetings from the Roman church to the believers in Ephesus. Even in these difficult times, the Lord enables him, empowers him with his presence and grace to think about others, to care about others, to show appreciation and concern. And so the fourth point that God wants us to see in our text is the presence and grace of Christ enabled Paul to send greetings and blessings to his friends. Verse 19 and 20, Paul sends greetings and information to Timothy or for Timothy. He writes, Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth and I left Trophimus who was ill at Miletus. Now Prisca is a shortened form of Priscilla. Priscilla and Aquila were a wife and husband team and they're mentioned six times in the New Testament. Four of those times Priscilla's name is first. Now, scholars debate about what Paul was trying to communicate here. Well, I think he was just showing courtesy and honor to Priscilla for her ministry in the church, her hospitality, her love for the Lord, her love for the Scriptures. She and her husband had a powerful ministry in Paul's life. Uh, They followed Paul throughout his ministry. They must have been fairly wealthy people as well. Because they lived in Rome for a while, then Corinth, then Ephesus, then Rome again, then back to Ephesus. And in a couple of those occasions, uh, they're referenced as having the, the church in their house. And so they must have had a large house, and they risked their necks for the gospel and for Paul. And this shows that Paul had a unique bond with certain people like Priscilla and Aquila, like Timothy and Luke. Jesus had a certain closer bond with a couple of his disciples, like Peter and John. He also had close friends like Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And then he greets the household of Onesiphorus. Onesiphorus was the man who Paul mentions back in chapter 1 of verse 6. He came to Rome to visit Paul, but he had to search him out. He didn't know where he was. And he painstakingly found out where he was. And he wasn't ashamed of Paul's chains, but he refreshed Paul. He also is committed for his service to the Ephesians in the Ephesian church. Some think he mentions Onesiphorus' household instead of Onesiphorus himself because maybe he had died at this point or he wasn't there. He was ministering somewhere else. And then he wants Timothy to know Erastus has stayed in Corinth and he left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Well, Timothy knew Erastus and Trophimus because they had ministered together. They both traveled to Macedonia to do ministry. 
Trophimus was an Ephesian who worked with Paul earlier, accompanying him in Jerusalem. But isn't it interesting here to note that Paul, even though he had at various times the gift of healing, and I believe this was a sign gift that was temporary to authenticate the apostles' authority before the scriptures were completed, but apparently Paul could not use this gift on demand because he left Trophimus sick in Miletus. And then Paul expresses his desire once more for Timothy to come soon to him. Look at verse 20. Do your best to come before winter. Why before winter? Well, you know from last week, he wanted a cloak because he knew winter was coming. If he wasn't going to be executed soon, he would be cold in his dungeon. But I also think that Rome was 900 miles away from Ephesus. And it took you to get there, go by ship and by land. And boats could not endure the harsh winter on the Mediterranean Sea. And that's why he tells Timothy to leave soon so he could get a boat and arrive there before winter. And then he sends greetings from a few of the believers in Rome that Timothy would have known of. Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers. Claudia is a woman. Linus is reported by the early church father, Irenaeus, to have followed Peter to be the leader of the Roman church or the pastor of the church of Rome. And then at the very end of this passage, in verse 22, Paul gives this brief closing benediction that closely resembles the benediction that he gives in the book of Galatians and Philemon. And it covers what Paul has been emphasizing here as the source of his strength. And it's to both Timothy and the church. He writes, the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. He wants Timothy to know the strength of the presence of the Lord with his spirit. He wants the church to know that The grace of Christ is with them. The enabling, sanctifying grace of Christ is with them. And earlier, Paul emphasized this in chapter 2, verse 1, when he said, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So these are Paul's last words, his last wishes, his last prayer for Timothy and the believers in Ephesus. This is how they would endure. This is how they would continue to proclaim the gospel despite opposition. This is how they would guard the gospel in a godless world. Let me give you five quick application points from our text as we finish up. Paul says that what Timothy and believers need is the presence and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, The most important question that you need to settle in your heart today is do you have the confidence of the Lord's presence and grace in your life? You see, we can be sure that we have the presence and the grace of Christ in our life, but this is not an automatic thing. We are born into this world separated from God, not in His favor, not in His presence. Why? Because we're sinners. And the Scriptures tell us that God 
is a holy God. He's a righteous God. He's given us the law to show us His perfect requirements in thought, word, and deed. And we fall short because we're sinners. Because we have a depraved nature. But God nonetheless requires this perfection of us or He cannot have fellowship with us. But in addition to this, the Bible tells us that God is a perfect judge. He is perfectly just. And so He must punish all sin. He cannot overlook any sin. And if you've sinned in one area, it's as if you've sinned in every area of the law. So we are condemned by the law. And we cannot atone for our sins. And we amass this great debt that we cannot repay. This is mankind's predicament. And yet the wonderful news of the Bible is that God in His love determined to save His people by providing them with righteousness, perfect righteousness, and by atoning for their sins. And He did this through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Father sent the Son, the second person of the Trinity, to come to this world to become a man. He took on human flesh and a human nature and yet without sin and yet remaining God to come and provide perfect righteousness for us and to atone for our sins. He did this by living a perfect life according to God's commandments, fulfilling all of them perfectly from the heart in order to give us His record of righteousness. But He also came to become the Lamb of God, the innocent Lamb of God, who would atone for our sins. On the cross, our sins were imputed to His account. And He received the justice. He received the judgment that we deserve for our sins through His awful suffering, bleeding, and death. And He rose from the dead on the third day to prove that He was indeed God the Messiah. That He had conquer death and sin and the devil for us and to certify that His righteousness and His atoning death was applied and accepted by the Father on our behalf. And so, those who are born again, those who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit acknowledge that they're sinners and they cannot save themselves. They cannot be righteous enough. They cannot atone for their sins and they turn from their self-righteousness And they rely on Jesus, who He is and what He did alone for their salvation. And when that occurs, they are declared righteous before God. They are forgiven of every single sin. They're adopted into God's family. They're made members of the kingdom of God. They're united with the Godhead and have fellowship with Him. And they are given the gift of heaven forever when they die. This is how you can know for certain that you have the Lord's presence in your life and His grace. So make sure that this is true for you. Don't end this day without making sure this has occurred in your life. And if you have Jesus' presence and grace, then you can count on Him for these next four results to occur in ever-increasing degrees by faith. Number two, if you have Jesus' presence and grace in your life, then He will empower you to forgive those who have deserted you, those who have hurt you, those who have sinned against you. 
You know, we learned from Paul that the Christian life, uh, we can expect disappointments. Not, not just opposition from non-believers, but disappointments from believers. Some of our good friends, believers in Christ, can disappoint us, can desert us. There may come a time when in our life all that we have is Jesus, but He is enough. We're to defend upon Him. So I ask you, do you have any bitterness? Do you have any grudges in your heart towards someone who has disappointed you? Someone who has sinned against you? Someone who has deserted you? Are you tempted to grumble and complain about them? Oh, God gives believers the power to forgive. The power to overlook offenses, just as Paul did. And believers will strive to have a forgiving posture. But number three, if you have Jesus' presence and grace, then he will strengthen you to proclaim the gospel. You will see that one of your highest goals in life is to be an ambassador for Christ in all circumstances that you are placed in, especially the difficult ones. He will give you the grace. He will give you the strength through his presence to share your testimony, to share the gospel with others. You will have a concern for people to know the presence of God and the grace of God. You'll pray for your children. You'll pray for your spouse. You'll pray for your relatives, your neighbors, your work associates that may not know the Lord. You'll pray and seek for opportunities to share the gospel with them. And you'll desire to invite non-believers to church to hear the proclamation of the word and the gospel. Fourthly, if you have Jesus' presence and grace, then you will have confidence of his rescue from evil and death. Believers will go through discouragements, will go through attacks. Christian life is a battle, as we've learned. There's spiritual warfare. The devil is trying to destroy our faith. He's trying to discourage us. He's trying to tell us that it's hopeless. There's nothing beyond the grave. Well, we're to know that God fights our battles for us. He's with us to strengthen us. He will not allow our faith to be extinguished. He will sustain us. He will cause us to persevere. And He will get us home. Heaven is our certain hope. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done for us. And so we can be certain that He will rescue us from the evil attempts of the devil, and He will also rescue us in death. We will be in our heavenly home, the heavenly kingdom. No matter what trial we face, no matter what you're going through right now, the Lord will rescue you. The Lord will cause you to persevere. The Lord will uphold you. Finally, if you have Jesus' presence and grace, then you will appreciate Christian friends and point them to the blessings of Christ. I think it's remarkable, if you read through Paul's letters, how many people he mentions that he knows, that he greets, that he prays for, etc. He clearly loved people. Paul never forgot his Christian friends. Even those that disappointed him. The final words of Christ, or, or of Paul here, are words of appreciation, words of concern for his friends. 
He loved them, flaws and all. What this teaches us is that we won't finish the Christian life well if we separate from the company of believers, especially in the local church. What is, a, what is it that gives us the kind of love and perseverance to love other believers who we know are flawed and we're flawed ourselves? Well, it's Christ. It's His love in us. It's knowing the patience that He shows us. He gives us that kind of patience and love for others. It's a supernatural love. We need to pursue the bonds of friendship between believers. Paul did this. He never wanted to minister alone. That's why he names all of these friends. They were were co-workers. They were fellow servants of the Lord with Paul. They were committed to one another. Even in the midst of having his own needs, even in the midst of his suffering in a prison, he has a concern and care for these people. And he wants to point them to Christ, to Christ's presence and Christ's grace. That ought to be our concern for our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we point them to the Lord and the strength that's found in Him. And so, may the Lord help us to live in the power of the presence of our living Lord Jesus Christ and be sustained by His grace in the days ahead. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank You for the closing message of this letter, the strength that we have through the presence of Christ in our lives and the grace that we have, the sustaining grace. Oh Jesus, help us to grow in our faith, to know that you will be faithful to be with us, to stand with us no matter what. And you will give us the power, the power to serve you, the power to proclaim the gospel, the power to forgive, the power to Know that we will endure and overcome the evil schemes of the devil and you will get us home. The power to encourage one another and to point each other to Christ. Thank you, Jesus, that you are here with us today and you will never leave us or forsake us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.